Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A hideous totem invested with sinister powers. What was this exotic other that goes out and shrinks heads of people? A devastating nuclear weapon that suddenly goes missing. They realize that this is quickly becoming a worst-case scenario. And an Arctic expedition that descends into tragedy. The men are hungry and they're almost out of food. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions. Unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. A nine foot human colon, the skeleton of a giant, and a preserved hand. These are just some of the bewildering items on display at the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But among the most shocking pieces in this collection, explains museum director Robert Hicks, are these items. Seems to have a miniature face. The texture of skin, it's not quite leathery. It's almost a little rubbery. These heads appear human, but they are closer in size to a doll than a person. Even museum educator Marcy Engelman finds these artifacts confounding. When I first saw this object, I was a little bit repulsed by it, but definitely curious about who made it and why they made it. But what are these cryptic relics? And where did they come from? It's the 1850s. A host of American travelers and explorers returns from South America with tall tales and bizarre totems. Miniature heads that the explorers claim once belonged to humans. This really grabbed the American imagination and people wanted to know more. Rumors abound that the heads are war trophies 
made by a remote tribe in the Amazon and are intended to be worn as a necklace. A fascinated public is hungry for stories and artifacts from primitive cultures, and a bidding war for shrunken heads erupts. People seem to be maybe repulsed by something, but yet attracted to it, and perhaps wanted to have one of these shrunken heads to show off to their friends and family. But little is known about the primitive people that made them. So there's a lot of interest in what was this exotic other that goes out and shrinks heads of people. Who could they be? The questions don't stop there. Did they really shrink human heads? And for what purpose? Peru, the 1850s. Explorers probing the depths of the Amazon make a startling discovery. An isolated indigenous tribe known today as the Shuar. Around their necks, they wear what appear to be miniature human heads. I would suppose that there was probably a great deal of fear about what they were saying and what these people were doing. The Shuar called these items sansas, and they are central to their deeply ritualized spiritual practice. The head was believed to retain the soul, and by possessing the head, you can possess the soul and control the family of that dead person. The warlike Shuar apply the practice to members of enemy tribes they've slain in battle. So what they would do is take the head to retain that person's soul so they couldn't come back from the afterlife and get revenge. The stunned explorers are eager to get their hands on these curious totems and trade modern firearms and large sums of money in exchange for the heads. Back in the United States, the population is fascinated by the trophies. Part of the reason for this is Americans were schooled in believing we are the height of civilization. These are primitive peoples. They're not civilized. So, of course, they would be barbaric and do strange things like this. Private collectors and institutions are willing to pay large sums to own the shrunken heads. And the Shuar look to capitalize on the developed world's interest in their rituals. Local entrepreneurs in Ecuador and Peru began to turn them out using monkeys to simulate human heads. And soon, counterfeit heads begin flooding the American market. Then, in the early 1900s, these two sansas are donated to the Mutter Museum. We get the most inquiries about shrunken heads than any other object in the museum. In the years since the first explorers encountered the Shuar, anthropologists have learned more about their culture and customs. The mystery of how sansas are made is strikingly simple. They would make a slit up the back of the head and remove the skull. They would boil the head. The head would be sewn back up and the inside of the head would be filled with hot rocks and hot sand. This would cause the tissue to shrink. But the question remains, were these shrunken heads made as part of the Schwarz spiritual practices, or are they counterfeits? Engelman points to a distinguishing characteristic on this head as a sign of its authenticity. Its threaded lips and eyes. The eyelids and the lips would be sewn shut, all in an effort to keep the soul of the person retained inside the head. 
Another key feature of an authentic Sansa is the hair. The Shuar believe that it too contains the power of the soul. So how you can tell a real Sansa would be that the hair has been left long. However, Engelman concludes that the other head in their collection, with its short hair and unadorned lips, is counterfeit. These counterfeit heads were often created strictly for collectors. So this one is not an authentic Sansa. While only one of these shrunken heads on display at the Mütter Museum is part of the Shuar spiritual tradition, they both offer insight into our fascination with a distant culture. The Commonwealth Museum in Boston, Massachusetts holds 20 million artifacts relating to the state's proud heritage. But in the museum's vault, director Stephen Kenny keeps a small woolen object that is linked to a dark episode in Massachusetts history. One of cold-blooded double murder. The artifact is six to eight inches in diameter. It has ear flaps that can be pulled down for the winter. It was a very common style of hat. But this is not just any old tweed hat. It became a national and international sensation. What role did this hat play in one of the most controversial murder trials of the 20th century? April 15, 1920. It's payroll day at a shoe factory in Braintree, Massachusetts. The company's paymaster and a security guard are carrying a box filled with $15,000 in cash when two gunmen appear out of nowhere and shoot them both dead. They then grabbed the box with the payroll and they sped away. It was a very shocking event. Eyewitnesses identify the killers as Italian-looking and the local police chief suspects it's the work of a new breed of political terrorists on the rise in 1920s America. Anarchists. Anarchists believed in the violent overthrow of the government. They had assassinated President McKinley. They had assassinated the president of France. People were very afraid of anarchists. They saw them the way we would see terrorists today. Braintree police get a tip that a gang of five Italian anarchists is operating in the area. And two weeks after the robbery, police apprehend two suspicious characters carrying loaded guns and anarchist pamphlets. 29-year-old Nicolas Sacco and 31-year-old Bartolomeo Vanzetti. When Sacco and Vanzetti were arrested, they were not told that they were suspects in a robbery and murder. They were questioned more about their political activities, so they lied to authorities about their political beliefs. Believing that they have the culprits, the police charge Sacco and Vanzetti with armed robbery and murder. But does that tell the full story of who these men are? Sacco worked as a skilled edge trimmer in a factory. Vanzetti was a fish peddler. Neither of them had ever been charged with a crime before. From the moment they were arrested, Sacco and Vanzetti maintained their innocence. But in 1920s America, anarchists are viewed with great suspicion. For the newspapers, anarchy and murder make a heady mix. And the Sacco and Vanzetti trial turns into one of the first media circuses of the 20th century. It became a national and international sensation. And feelings were very strong on both sides of it. 
At trial, the prosecution presents three pieces of physical evidence. A gun that they claim Vanzetti stole from the slain security guard. A bullet that they claim Sacco fired from his gun, killing the security guard. And most bizarre, a hat. The same tweed hat that's now in the archives at the Commonwealth Museum. It was said that a hat was found next to the guard immediately after the robbery. Uh, a person who worked with Sacco said that he wore a hat like that, and he kept it on a nail at work. And there seemed to be a tear on the inside of the hat that would correspond to a nail mark. Sacco is asked to try on the hat in front of the jury. Sacco said that this was not the size that he wore, and he seemed to think the whole exercise was silly. But Sacco tries on the hat, and it seems too small for him. But is this evidence enough to set Sacco and Vanzetti free? Within days, the jury will decide if they are innocent victims of a political witch hunt or guilty of first-degree murder. In 1920, Italian immigrants Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti are on trial for a brutal double murder. The prosecution's key piece of evidence? This simple tweed cap. But many believe that Sacco and Vanzetti are innocent and are only being targeted because of their radical political beliefs. So, what will the jury decide? On July 21st, 1921, after only three hours of deliberation, the jury delivers the verdict. The final verdict in the trial of Sacco and Vanzetti was guilty. And they were sentenced to die in the electric chair. The guilty verdict sends shockwaves throughout the country and beyond. There really were demonstrations all over the world protesting this. But just when the whole world thinks that Sacco and Vanzetti's execution is a fait accompli, the former police chief of Braintree comes forward with a shocking revelation about the tweed hat. He said that the hat was not found immediately after the robbery. It was found the following evening, after hundreds of people had been milling around. And he also said that he had made a tear in the lining of the hat looking for identification. So almost certainly, this was not Sacco's hat. Urgent calls are made for a stay of execution and a retrial. 20,000 people converge on Boston Common, demanding that the lives of Sacco and Vanzetti be spared. Several appeals went to the judge, and in every case, he turned them away. On August 22, 1927, Sacco and Vanzetti are led to the electric chair. They went to their death with dignity. Sacco said, long live anarchy, said farewell to his wife and child. Vanzetti said that he was innocent. He had committed some sins, but no crimes. So it was kind of a dramatic uh, and poignant exit for both of these men. We may never know the truth about the Sacco and Vanzetti trial, but more than 80 years after their execution, a small tweed hat at the Commonwealth Museum reminds visitors of a time when America was torn down the middle over the case of two Italian immigrants.
Chicago, Illinois, home of world-class architectural marvels. But many believe the Midwest's largest city would look very different today, if not for a rusted artifact on display at the Chicago History Museum. It's covered with grime and corrosion, and it's something that has clearly uh, been burnt. Museum curator Jill Austin knows that this mangled hunk of metal may hold the key to one of Chicago's most enduring legends. It's a cowbell, but not just any old cowbell. What role did this innocent-looking artifact play in one of the worst disasters in Chicago's history? 1871. Chicago is an industrial metropolis that is expanding rapidly. But this growing urban center, largely made out of wood, is about to undergo a radical and violent change. One night in October, the city's fire station receives word of a blaze at a dairy barn on the south side of the river. But by the time they arrive, the fire is spiraling out of control. The fire quickly went from being just located in a single barn to basically forming walls of flame as high as the buildings themselves. Within one hour, what started as a small flare-up in the barn of Irish immigrant Catherine O'Leary has set ablaze the entire south side of Chicago. The fire department's only hope is that the fire will be stopped by the Chicago River, which separates the north and south sides of the city. People on the far north side were quite leisurely thinking that they wouldn't be affected by it. But they are wrong. The riverbanks are loaded with lumber, and what should have kept the fire at bay becomes a catalyst to mass destruction. Burning material landed on boats and, and wharves. The river itself became a kind of chain of fire, and this allowed the fire to spread through the north side. The heavily residential north side serves as kindling to the fire. Frantic efforts are made to stop the blaze until the fire department's main water depository, made out of wood, goes up in flames. And the fire just propelled northward, uh, sweeping up into Lincoln Park and devastating all in its path. The neighborhood burns for three hours until Mother Nature comes to the rescue. It was only because of the rains coming that the fire could really stop. But the damage is done. The Great Fire of Chicago leaves 300 people dead and 18,000 buildings burned to the ground. For much of the population, now homeless and distraught, one question rings out. Who or what started the Great Fire? The Chicago Evening Journal identified uh, the, the fire as being started at 137 to Coven Street by a cow kicking a lantern while it was being milked by a woman. The same cow whose bell is now on display at the Chicago History Museum. The newspaper claims that Catherine O'Leary's cow kicked a lantern which fell into a hay bale, starting the fire. Someone needed to be blamed, and that easy target was Catherine O'Leary. But Mrs. O'Leary denies that she and her cow started the Great Fire, claiming that she was asleep when it began. So did Mrs. O'Leary's cow knock over the lantern that engulfed Chicago in flames? 
or was it something else entirely? Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Chicago fire of 1871 levels the city to ashes. Rumors circulate that Mrs. O'Leary's cow is to blame, that it kicked over a lantern, setting a barn on fire. But did a cow really start the legendary blaze? Or was it something or someone else? The idea that she was the one who was responsible for it continued to, to just energize the public's imagination. People are angry that someone would be so careless. Despite the universal belief that Mrs. O'Leary started the fire, there is one man who knows that she didn't. The journalist who originally reported the story but kept the truth behind it a secret for 50 years. In 1921, a former Chicago Tribune reporter writes an article in which he, that he claims that he and two of his associates basically made up the O'Leary story. After the Chicago reporter's confession exonerates Mrs. O'Leary, a dizzying tangle of stories emerges. You have a lot of people uh, coming out of the woodwork in, in the decades after the fire. You know, they wanted to be there. They even perhaps wanted to be the cause. And it became almost a, a romantic thing. One such person is Daniel Sullivan, a neighbor who lives across the street from the O'Leary's. He claims to have been in the O'Leary's barn on that fateful night. 
One possible theory is that Daniel Sullivan stopped into the O'Leary barn, perhaps to like smoke a pipe, that Daniel Sullivan was responsible for the fire, either through, you know, dropping a stray match, slipping and falling on the floor. Who knows? But other people also come forward to claim credit for starting the fire, including underworld figures playing craps in the barn and teenage girls having a raucous barn party that same night. Perhaps the most outlandish theory for the fire is put forth in the 1980s, that a comet fell from the sky and turned Chicago into a roaring ball of fire. The theory holds that debris from it fell to Earth and caused the fires to break out in these different locations. But the truth about the Great Chicago Fire remains a mystery to this day. I don't know that we will ever quite know what truly happened in those key moments when the fire began in that barn. Instead, the bell from Mrs. O'Leary's barn still stands on display in the Chicago History Museum, an aging relic from a tragic chapter in the city's history. Antique automobiles, nautical heritage, and aviation achievements. These are just a few of the themes on display at the Seattle Museum of History and Industry. And here, according to museum director Leonard Garfield, one puzzling metallic disc hints at a conspiratorial tale. It's about 75 years old. There are little knobs that indicate that it is technological. And like any new technology, it was applied for good uses and for not such good uses. This retro item sits at the center of a nefarious scheme to profit from one of America's most controversial decrees, prohibition. How did this antique item contribute to one of the most successful bootlegging operations of all time? 1917. Seattle, Washington. With the government's ban on liquor in full effect, America's criminal underclass takes to the shadows to covertly import and distribute illegal booze. One man makes it his business to combat this unlawful bootlegging. His name is Roy Olmsted. Roy Olmsted was a cop, he was an upstanding citizen, he was a big guy, he was a friendly guy, and most of all, he was a really smart guy. But as Olmsted puts these crooks behind bars, he begins to understand them, even envy them. He notices that the criminals are, one, making a lot of money, but secondly, they're not so smart. In 1920, Olmsted decides he can do better. So he makes a career switch. Here was the guy that personified the side of justice and law, and he flipped, he went to the other side. From his time on the force, Olmsted is perfectly placed to become the city's major bootlegger. He knew what worked, and more importantly, he knew what did not work. Roy knows that the remote islands and large bodies of water surrounding Seattle are practically impossible for lawmen to patrol. A smuggler's paradise. Roy's plan was really simple, and it was beautifully executed. He got his liquor in Canada, where it was still legal, he boarded it onto fast boats known as rum runners. And then under the cover of night, they'd go to all the speakeasies and all the private clubs in the region. Soon, Roy Olmsted has outsold all the competition. 
But his career switch is not going unnoticed, and suspicious Prohibition agents vow to bring him down. But it won't be as easy as they think. Roy Olmsted was not your typical gangster. He was, in his mind, a legitimate businessman. He was efficient, he was observant, he was methodical. In order to coordinate his numerous affiliates, Roy Olmsted needs a way to communicate. The mystery was, how did he make sure that every rum runner knew where to go, when to go, and how to avoid the police? In the 1920s, long-distance communication is still fairly primitive. And let's not forget, this was illegal. So you're not going to pick up the phone, for example, and call up your associate and say, hey, bring in a couple cases of illegal hooch from Canada. Prohibition agents are baffled. How is Roy Olmsted covertly communicating with his network of rum runners? In Prohibition-era Seattle, the booze flows freely thanks in part to former cop-turned-bootlegger Roy Olmsted. Investigators are closing in on Olmsted. But what they can't figure out is how he is communicating with his vast network of rum runners. One day, the federal agents discovered, along with the rest of Seattle, that Roy Olmsted started a radio station in his own private residence. That raised some eyebrows. Radio is not yet a standard household item. Olmsted's cutting-edge creation, station KFQX, is one of the first of its kind in Seattle. And at the center of it all is this microphone. But investigators are puzzled by Olmsted's choice of programming. A children's show, hosted by Roy's wife, Elise. Night after night, Elise reads aloud from a book of nursery rhymes. For a program she calls... Aunt Vivian's bedtime hour. It was a little unusual that Elise Olmsted, who was known for being the life of the party, who had no children of her own, decided to take on the role of Seattle's fairy tale godmother. Agents are perplexed. Could Olmsted be using his radio for something more than innocent entertainment? One day, they get a break in the case. The guy who built the Olmsted's radio transmitter became an informant. And he told the federal agents codes were embedded in the broadcast. It seems Elise's radio program isn't intended for children, but for an entirely different audience altogether. The agents were certain that embedded in the fairy tales are secret codes that transmit signals to rum runners, giving them clues on where to bring their liquor how to avoid the police. This was the missing link. It was the radio. Eager agents tune in for a clue that will help them finally put Olmsted behind bars. But it seems he has outsmarted them again. They never really cracked the code. Who knows, maybe three little pigs meant three boats can come safely into harbor. They just never figured out exactly how she did it. Frustrated Prohibition agents know they'll have to catch Roy Olmsted another way. Using informants, they are able to gather enough evidence to arrest the couple in November of 1924. And when agents bust Olmsted's web of associates, they find one incriminating possession in each of their homes. That seems to confirm their suspicions. 
The one thing that most of them have in common is they have radio receiving sets in their homes. In court, Olmsted is found guilty of violating the National Prohibition Act. But Elise is acquitted. With her code still unsolved, she claims that her interest in fairy tales is purely recreational, despite her overwhelming motive and means. No one was 100% sure of what the codes were, but they were certain that Elise Olmsted was broadcasting those codes. Coincidence or not, this incredible story is forever preserved at the Seattle Museum of History and Industry where an aging radio microphone has given its final sign-off. Egyptian mummies, dinosaur fossils, and treasures from the Alaskan frontier adorn the halls of Pittsburgh's Carnegie Museum of Natural History. And deep in its vaults is a collection of delicate plant samples, their natural beauty unblemished and their innocence plain to see. Dr. Cynthia Morton knows that the size of the flowers speaks to their origins. They're all tiny because they are from the Arctic regions, and the plants really didn't get that big. These botanical samples bore witness to a harrowing expedition into the Arctic, and they serve as a bleak reminder of a group of explorers who paid the ultimate price to bring them back. This was an expedition that was equivalent to Lewis and Clark, but because it went so terribly wrong, you don't hear about it in the history books. What disastrous events unfolded during this Arctic voyage? 1881. Civil War veteran and explorer, Lieutenant Adolphus Greeley, leads a team of 25 men on a scientific expedition to the Arctic. They establish a base just 500 miles from the North Pole on Ellesmere Island. It was unknown exactly what would be found that far north, so documenting that was extremely important. For two years, the men immersed themselves in Arctic study. Which was an attempt to try a new kind of Arctic exploration, doing methodical scientific research. They found new lakes, new mountains, and they were doing lots of mapping and collecting whatever specimens they could find. Throughout this mission, the men remain isolated, without fresh supplies or the ability to communicate with their families back home. But by the spring of 1883, their trip is nearing its end. The men of the expedition were in an anxious state of mind. Consuming their thoughts is the imminent arrival of their ship back to the United States. The boat is supposed to pick them up and bring them home. Weeks pass, and the men stand watch, waiting for the crew that is meant to take them home. But as winter sets in, they face the harsh reality that the ship isn't coming. And I'm sure they're all wondering what's going to happen to them now. Most members of the expedition realized that if they would have to put into effect the plan to escape the Arctic. Lieutenant Greeley triggers his contingency plan, preset with the Navy two years earlier. As supplies dwindle and temperatures drop, they set out for a designated rescue site 250 miles south at Cape Sabine. But will they make it out alive?
1881. Lieutenant Adolphus Greeley and his crew embark upon a scientific expedition to the Arctic. But when the team is cut off from its supply lines, the journey takes a harrowing turn. With food running out and winter closing in, can Greeley and his men survive? The 25 men are thousands of miles from home, traveling to their rescue site, Cape Sabine. But crossing ice-choked waters in small fishing boats is no easy ride. As the temperatures dropped, the conditions got very difficult, and they continued to consume more and more provisions. Finally, after 51 days in icy waters, they make it to shore alive. But their life-or-death struggle is far from over. By the time they actually make it to Cape Sabine, the men are hungry and they're almost out of food. Even worse, there is only a small stash of provisions waiting at Cape Sabine. Without ample supplies, Greeley establishes a strict food rationing plan. The conditions grew increasingly bleak. Some of the men were sick and the other men were very, very weak. One by one, they die of starvation, huddled together in a single tent. So we can only imagine that this tent was kind of a den of horrors. After seven agonizing months at Cape Sabine, on June 22, 1884, a rescue ship finally arrives to take the party home. But of the original 25 men, only seven are found alive. The bodies of the dead are collected and the few living men travel back to America. With the survivors is all of their scientific material, including these botanical samples. When those ships arrive in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, there's an incredible rush of support for Greeley and his men. But people are left wondering, how did these men survive winter in the Arctic without enough food? In the Carnegie Collection is another artifact from the tragic voyage, the journal of Sergeant David Ralston, who details some of the most haunting moments at Cape Sabine. We learned that they had to survive on foxes, blubber. They ate their soles of their boots, candle wax. The last entry in Ralston's journal is dated January 1884, leaving out the final bitter details before his death in June. But it's during this time that Ralston, along with the other men in the party, may have resorted to eating something even less palatable. In exhuming the bodies of some of the men who had died, people noticed that the flesh had been stripped from the bones. And almost immediately the report goes out that members of the expedition had resorted to cannibalism. These dark rumors soon come to overshadow the expedition's scientific research. The Greeley expedition succeeded in its scientific goals, but also had this taint of cannibalism. Here at the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh is an eerie reminder of the Greeley expedition. It pays tribute to a haunting Arctic voyage and the determined men who gave their lives in the pursuit of science. Sitting among New Mexico's barren plains and plateaus is the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History. 
Its artifacts and exhibits tell the story of the nuclear era. But one ominous object here hides a harrowing tale that fascinates historian Jennifer Richter. The object is about 10 feet long, cylindrical shaped, silver in color. It's extraordinarily heavy. It's the damaged remains of one of the deadliest weapons of the Cold War, the casing of a hydrogen bomb. It's obviously been through something horrendous and it's amazing that's intact at all. But how did this explosive device sustain so much damage? And what was its role in one of the worst military accidents in history? January 17, 1966. The chill of the Cold War hangs over Europe. An American B-52 bomber and a flying fuel tanker collide over Spain and go down near the fishing village of Palomares. Anthropologist Bill Duan has studied the incident. The tanker itself is entirely destroyed. The bomber itself is broken into several parts in midair. While four crew members parachute to safety, seven airmen are instantly killed. But when American officials arrive, the monumental task of rescuing the survivors, recovering the dead, and collecting debris isn't their only concern. Aboard the crashed bomber were four hydrogen bombs loaded with nuclear material. And all four have fallen somewhere in southern Spain. In terms of nightmare scenarios involving a nuclear disaster, this is approaching Dr. Strangelove levels, in my mind. American officials must find the missing bombs before anyone else does. If the Soviet Union got their hands on these bombs, they could compromise a lot of nuclear secrets, a technology the U.S. was harboring. But within the first 24 hours of searching, Three of the bombs are located near Palomares. One of the bombs remained fairly intact, resting in a riverbed, while the other two explosive devices on them had detonated. The conventional explosives in the bomb's outer layers have detonated, leaving the nuclear core largely intact. But the explosion has sprayed the area with radioactive plutonium. The American military is forced to remove about 1,400 feet of contaminated soil. The fallout or the contamination actually could have been much worse than it actually was. But the question remains, where is the fourth and final bomb? As hours turn into days and dozens of searchers become hundreds, the terrifying reality sets in. Somewhere on the Spanish coast, there's a lost nuclear bomb. Will the U.S. find it before the Soviets do? It's 1966. A U.S. B-52 bomber crashes over Spain. When the wreckage is examined, investigators find that one of the nuclear bombs it was carrying is mysteriously missing. Now, the race is on to find this devastating weapon before it's too late. After weeks of searching, American officials are still empty-handed. 
The pressure on especially the upper levels of the military at this point is incredible. To be able to say, we found the bomb, everything is okay. And yet week after week after week, they're unable to do this. Then, a Spanish fisherman comes forward with startling information. The local fisherman had said, you know, I think I saw something falling into the water. It was attached to a parachute. What he was actually seeing was the fourth bomb. A fleet of boats, planes, and divers is unleashed to scour the Mediterranean seabed. But as the search begins, there is unnerving news. A Soviet spy ship has been spotted nearby. With the presence of the Soviets, they realize that this is quickly becoming a worst-case scenario. The team is racing against time, but their mission is hampered by the size and depth of the search area. By the time they got to about 2,000 feet of water, where no human can actually explore unaided, they started to enlist the help of different submersibles. One of those submersibles is the Alvin, a research vessel that can dive down to 6,000 feet. Alvin and its crew spend days scouring the nearly pitch-black bottom of the sea. Then, two months after the crash, there's a breakthrough. They finally found something, uh, just like a big white sheet that was lying on the bottom of the, the Mediterranean seabed. But underneath the sheet, there was something definitely there. 2,500 feet beneath the Mediterranean waves, still attached to its parachute, is the missing bomb. They managed to pull it out of the water using a winch system above the surface of the water. Its tail is torn, its nose dented, but no radiation is leaking, and the bomb is securely in American hands. This was a huge day of relief for the U.S., because this was one of the most embarrassing episodes in U.S. history, but also one of the most potentially catastrophic. Today, the casing of this once-missing bomb can be found at the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History, reminding future generations of the perils of the nuclear age. From shrunken heads to Arctic flowers, deadly infernos to missing bombs. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. <laughs>